Lord, we bow humbly in your presence, grateful for your faithfulness to us, even in our faithlessness, thankful for the exhortive power of your word, the restorative nature of your grace, the convicting power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father, for how you sustain us, even when we find ourselves in weary times. Thank you, Father, for how you have the ability to take broken things and remake them, and and you make all things beautiful in your time. We commit ourselves now, Lord, to the hearing of the word. Give us understanding as we study, and then help us to walk in obedience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, there are occasions in a pastor's life and ministry that... uh, We find ourselves in the important position of being the counselor. Sometimes it's premarital counseling, sometimes it's postmarital, and there are stresses to deal with and difficulties. I have, through the years, developed a little word picture that I want to share with you um, that I use sometimes in a couple different ways to remind us of the precarious nature of marriage and how easy it is sometimes to let things go longer than they should be allowed to go to the degree that our houses come tumbling down. I use the analogy of a house, that is, that a husband and wife, as they come together on the platform in marriage, are building a house. And so picture them. They come together, and this is the house that they are building. And it's a beautiful house. They've looked forward to living in this house, and they've decorated it carefully. They've selected everything from the shingle color to the color of the towels in the bathroom. And then one day, along the way, one of them rises and heads downstairs to the basement. And it's an unfinished basement with the floor joists exposed and plumbing pipes running along the floor joists. And, And they notice one morning, a leak in the plumbing. And so the wife thinks that's no good, so she quick grabs uh, her grandma's old Dutch oven is there on a shelf, and she runs over and places it underneath the leak and drip, drip, catch the drip. No problem. Took care of that. A few days later, one of the other, the other spouse goes downstairs and, why, there's another leak back in the corner. He grabs, the, grabs their igloo cooler, opens the lid, and sticks it underneath there. And... It goes on and on, and, if, and they've gathered everything. They've got trash cans down there, and through the weeks, the, the, pipe, the pipes are leaking, and they never occurs to them to call, call the plumber. And they just keep catching the drips, man. They've got duct tape wrapped around it. They've got bubble gum and electric tape wrapped around it. And they've got every container, trash cans. They've got Tupperware. And then one day, they wake up, and the water's coming up the basement steps, and they realize... It's a hopeless cause. We just can't catch all the leaks springing from our plumbing. The man, he's the one to be aggressive most of the time, and he decides, I had it. That's it. He walks out in the backyard, grabs the gasoline can from the lawnmower out of the shed, walks up and down the hallway of their beautiful home on that carpet they carefully picked out together. So romantic. Went in the bathroom all over the kitchen vanity, all over the bedrooms, pours gasoline, they both step back and they say, agreed, let's do it, throw a torch to it, and they stand and they watch it burn down. Too late to fix it. It's a horrible picture, isn't it? It's often the case in our lives, and this morning as we finish up part two of our sermon on what the Bible says, what Jesus said, and what Genesis says about marriage, and what Jesus said about remarriage and divorce, question I want to ask you is, does the Bible ever give us permission to burn down our house? We're in the middle of a series. If you've been attending, you know that we're studying the book of Genesis. It's interesting where the book of Genesis leads us, isn't it? All over the place. And uh, we find that there are so many foundational realities and truths in the book of Genesis upon which to build our lives. And that when we miss the point in Genesis, we really miss the point. Everything from evolution versus creation to gender roles to to male and female in marriage and not same-sex gender marriage and so forth. And we find, as we will this morning when we 
book in Matthew's gospel in the life and ministry of Christ that when some Pharisees and religious leaders of the day came and tried to pin him in the corner and trap him on a question about marriage and divorce, he quotes Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. And so that's why our series in Genesis has led us into this cultural series, and we're calling it When the Word and the World Collide, because we're seeing with a number of these issues that if you understand Genesis as Jesus obviously did to be exactly as God intended things to be, and if you believe it and if you live it out, you will come into great conflict with the mindset of the world around which we live. And so this morning, before we get to Jesus' words, because that's where we want to end up, in Matthew chapter 19 particularly, don't turn there yet, we want to find out what did Jesus say about this. He was asked a specific question about marriage and divorce and ultimately what re, when, who can remarry. What did Jesus say? I want to know what Jesus said about that, don't you? But to understand what Jesus said about that, You have to understand God's view of sexual immorality that springs outside of, that that corrupts the marriage bed. You need to understand God's view of marriage and how seriously takes immorality within that marriage. Because if you don't understand that, you won't understand why Jesus said what he said. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to begin by building a biblical foundation and understanding of the sanctity of marriage in God's sight. We've done that in Genesis, and last week we talked about God's template for marriage. We'll not review that in Genesis chapter 2, 24, and in that range right there. But we're going to talk about just a few select passages of Scripture, a brief Bible study, building a foundation for God's view of marriage and how sacred it is and what it means to God when it is violated in a sexual nature specifically. A biblical foundation. From there, we're going to go to Matthew 19 and we're going to talk about the Pharisees' misinterpretation, particularly of Deuteronomy 24. We will look at how Jesus reminds us of the original expectation of marriage we will understand that Jesus will give then a, limit, a practical limitation about divorce and remarriage. And then we're going to end in 1 Corinthians 7 with the Apostle Paul on some additional information about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. So let's begin in Exodus chapter 20 this morning. And we, let's do a little brief Bible study here on a biblical foundation of marriage and the seriousness of the sexual violation of marriage. You'll understand eventually why I want to show you this specifically because you might be sitting there and you would say, well, there's all kinds of ways to... Yes, there is. Uh, Am I moving too much? There's all kinds of ways to violate um, a marriage. But specifically, I want you to see how seriously God takes it when a marriage is violated with sexual sin. Again, this refers, this is going to lay a foundation for understanding our Lord's answer to the Pharisees. Exodus chapter 20, this is the great Ten Commandments passage, and you know it quite well, I'm sure, whether you've been around church or not. And one of the things you need to see there, of course, we have the first half of the commandment list, tells us how to relate to God. The second half of our commandment list tells us how to relate to one another in relationship, okay? And... And it doesn't take very long. He says, honor your father and mother, verse 12. You shall not murder. See, that's an easy memory verse. If you don't know Bible verses, you can just memorize that. See, you shall not murder. 14, you shall not commit adultery. Look at that. In his list, his top 10 list, you might say, God is protecting the sanctity of marriage. And you wouldn't think he'd have to do that. If, you do, if you're around weddings, you always see how in love the bride and the groom are. It would never occur to you then to give them some instruction. Uh, before you leave on your honeymoon, let me just tell you guys, no adultery. It seems odd, doesn't it? Well, why would you have to remind them of that? Because of the sinful nature of a man's heart and a woman's heart, and because Satan is out to destroy us and the weakness of our flesh, 
But God, right up front, says, I protect marriage, I protect children, I protect this most foundational and important aspect of our culture and society, the family, and one of the key ways I do it is no adultery allowed. Look at later in the list, he says, verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. So twice in the list, he addresses this issue. Number one, he says, you don't get off your porch. You don't go across your backyard, crawl over the fence, go in your neighbor's house and get in his bed with his wife. You don't do that physically. Secondly, you don't get your iced tea out and sit on the deck chair and look at your neighbor's wife and covet her. You leave that alone. These are strong words, aren't they? And it's interesting that if you would look at Leviticus chapter 20, don't do that, turn to Numbers chapter 25 right now. But in Leviticus 20, God reinforces this under Mosaic law. And when Israel was under theocracy, God said, none of this to go on. And he said, if it does go on, guess what? Kill them. Wait a minute. Yep, kill them. And it happened. Numbers chapter 25. Numbers chapter 25, notice God's attitude about what happens in this case study. This is an interesting story. Numbers chapter 25, verse 1. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in what? Look at sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. Little g. The people ate and bowed down before these gods... So Israel joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. Now I recognize, uh, look up for a minute, that in the context of the passage, God's wrath is being poured out upon idolatry. That is the worship of something other than who he is. All right, And they're following after these pagan gods. But I want you to notice that indicative of the whole thing And the departure from their loyalty to the one true God is that they immediately indulged in sexual immorality. The two are closely related. You will find throughout scripture the template is there. And you will, from observing people, that when they walk away from the Lord, not far away is sexual immorality in their life. It happens all the time. He'd go on to read. The Lord said to Moses, verse 4, Take all of the leaders of these people... Look at this. And kill them, expose them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to Israel's judges, Each of you must put to death those of your men who have joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor. How would you like it if you were one of the judges that day? You know, you were sitting by your fire outside your tent several years ago. And Moses walked by and said, we need you to be a judge here. You know, kind of like being a board member at church. Come on, we need a board. Come on. Okay, I'll be a judge. And now you're in the middle of it. And Moses calls all the judges in and he says, boys, strap on your swords. We've got a nasty job to do. I want you to go through this camp. I want you to put to the sword every man who's been immoral with a Moabite woman. Wow. Now look what it says. Verse 6. Then an Israelite man brought to his family a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And when Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw this, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, and followed the Israelite into the tent. He drove the spear through both of them, through the Israelite, and into the woman's body. Then the plague against Israel was stopped. But those who died in the plague numbered, look at that, 24,000. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites, for he was as zealous as I am for my honor among them, so that in my zeal I did not put an end to them. I want to tell you, you can't overstate how powerful that picture is. 
And there's Moses calling the judges together and saying, we're out of control in our camp and our men are adulterating like crazy. We're worshiping false gods. Put your sword on, go kill them. And as they're weeping in brokenness over the sin of God's people, they look over at the next tent block over probably. You know, they were organized in their camp. And they see a guy, an Israelite, walking into his tent with a Midianite woman, and evidently by the way they were acting, by the way they were dressed, somehow they knew exactly what was going on. And Phinehas said, that's enough. Grabs his sword, goes over there, and in, implicit in the story is that when he ran the spear through him, he was already on top of her, and he got them both with one shove of the spear. You think God doesn't care about this? He put it right in the Ten Commandments. Of all the things he could have put in the Ten Commandments, He illustrates it with stories like this, and 1 Corinthians chapter 10 points to this and says, this is for our learning. You read it, he said, this is an example that you would walk in purity. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he he points this out. And that day, 24,000 people died in a plague that God brought upon them for immorality and idolatry. How many of you are glad it's the church age? How many of you are glad that we're under grace and the blood of Christ? You want to go live under law? The law was there to show us that we couldn't do it in our own strength. And that's why the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is so precious to us, because it cleanses us from all sin. He took our punishment and our pain, didn't he? So that we didn't have to put a, have a spear run through us. He had a spear run into him. The the New Testament says that he became sin for us. He who knew no sin. Praise God. Do you know Jesus Christ is your Savior today? If you don't, listen, you're one breath away from hell, my friend. You say, you preachers all talk like that. Yeah, because it's true and it's in the Bible. I didn't make it up. But not only that, if you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, not only do you have heaven as your home and you're rescued from hell, But you have the power of Christ in you to say no to temptation, to love your wife deeply, to love your husband, to grow in grace, to be the household God called you to be, to stop up that plumbing. But the New Testament has strong words too. Go to Ephesians chapter 5. We're very close to getting to Jesus' words in Matthew. One more stop in Ephesians chapter 5. These are just a few select passages to show you, point number one, a biblical foundation of how God views marriage and how serious it is to violate marriage, particularly in the area of sexual sin. Ephesians chapter 5, we of course in the Ephesians 5 passage, beginning with verse 22, have that great passage on the command of Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wives, submit like the church submits to Christ. What a beautiful picture, and this is part of why God hates sin and corruption in a marriage, because a marriage is partly designed to be a picture of Christ and his love for his bride, the church. But I want you to look at Ephesians 5, beginning with verse 1. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Verse 3, here's the New Testament standard. The New Testament standard on any kind of uh, unapproved sexuality outside of the sacred marriage bed. Here it is. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality, or of any kind of impurity, because these are improper for God's holy people. Not even a hint is to be in our lives, God says. I want to protect you from yourself, he says. I want to protect your homes. I want to protect your children. I want to protect your churches. I mean, think if God didn't put this, come to church, and guys over here are looking at your wife when you're sitting over here, and it's chaos. And God says, no, we don't mess around with this. And here's my standard. It's a zero tolerance standard. Not even a hint. Now to Jesus' words in Matthew 5, which lead us to Matthew 19. 
Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus spoke specifically to the issue of how serious it was for a man to commit adultery. And in Ephesians 5, beginning with verse 27, look what he says. This is that whole list of contrast. You have heard it said. You have heard. This is what everybody thinks is right. But I'm here to tell you this is the way it is, Jesus says. And it goes over and over here. And at verse 27, he addresses specifically sexuality outside of the marriage bed. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. 527 Matthew. Verse 28, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. I just get the fuzzies when I think about how lovey-dovey Jesus was in his talk. What a, what a Jesus. I have a question for the men, particularly in the audience today. How many of you think if you cut your right hand off, it would keep you from lusting after a woman? How many of you gouged your one right eye out, it would, could keep you from lusting in your heart? Listen, you can cut off any part of your body you want. It doesn't stop you from lusting. Why? Because it's a matter of the heart, isn't it? And Jesus is presenting a standard here. He said, you have heard it said, you know, do not commit adultery. But I'm telling you, I don't even want you lusting after somebody who's not your wife. That's how much we're to love our wives, men. And wives, isn't that how you want to be loved by your husband? That when he thinks of a woman, he thinks of me. In our world, it's not that way. We have the word in direct conflict with the world now, don't we? The television's full of it. Movies and magazines are full of it. We were sitting at University of Maryland Medical Center in the clinic for Janet Friday morning. And uh, Janet and Deanna both are doing very well. I don't mean to speak for Deanna as much as Janet, but my observation would be that Deanna should give me thumbs up. Their names are still on the back of the bulletin. I meant to pull them by now. And you can save a stamp. You don't have to send them a card unless you want to. They still like getting cards, but you've been so kind to send cards. But uh, that should have been off there by now. Praise God, they're doing great. Kidney function's excellent on both, for both of them. and Restoration is almost complete. We were sitting in the clinic there at University of Maryland, and I wasn't where I could see the lounge television, the waiting room television. And, and Janet said, why are they publicizing that on television? I'm not going to tell you what it is, but you've seen enough television of the, the different kinds of things that they promote to enhance... This part of uh, the, the sexuality and the sexual nature of, pe- of human behavior. Not necessarily done in such a way to promote marriage either. Listen, we've become a culture without shame. We've become a culture that's not embarrassed about anything. And we've become a church that is a lot like the culture, entertaining ourselves with things that God says, not even a hint, man. Don't even lust in your heart. Listen, that's impossible apart from the regenerating power of Jesus Christ in my life, making me a new creation in Christ. And then, as Paul told Timothy, discipline yourself unto godliness. And the word he used in the Greek was gymnazo, workout, discipline, gymnasium. You've got you've to keep your eyes on Jesus or you're going to fail. The next verse is verse 31. That's how strongly Jesus feels about protecting marriage. It's hyperbole, by the way. I didn't finish my thought there. That's hyperbole. Don't get in mind. You can go home and get a, get a cleaver and whack your hand off so you can quit lusting after somebody else's wife. Jesus is using hyperbole to say it's an extreme thing. It's radical. He knows it's a matter of the heart and the mind and cutting off body parts isn't going to stop the heart and the mind from functioning. Clearly, he doesn't mean to maim yourself, but he's saying, I'm telling you, this is serious business. He then goes on in verse 31 and he addresses divorce. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. 
But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Excuse me. We now have laid a biblical foundation for what God thinks of marriage and what God thinks about sexual sin outside of the sacred marriage bed. Let's move to the second part and we now have Jesus addressing the Pharisees' misinterpretation of what marriage is supposed to be. This is the misinterpretation. And number one, it was that you couldn't just speak your divorce. You see, it was such a man's world back then that it had gotten to where you could just speak your divorce. Woman, leave my home. I divorce you. And off she went. And the, and the men had wives for bearing children, and then they had concubines. It was a corrupt world. We don't live in the most corrupt culture. We're getting there, but we're not quite there yet. And cultures throughout the history have cycled through these kinds of things. And so the Pharisees of the day had gotten together and made an agreement, and there was basically agreed upon in the culture, you've got to quit just voicing your divorce. You've got to write out a certificate of divorce. And so the idea was, and Jesus says, you have heard it said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. As long as you do the paperwork, you can divorce for anything you want to divorce. Anybody heard of a culture and society like that? That's us, isn't it? I mean, who ever heard of such a stupid thing as a no-fault divorce? Get the paperwork. Let's keep this as neat and clean as possible. Listen, there's no such thing as a clean divorce. There's no such thing as a divorce that doesn't break hearts and lives apart. And the Pharisees, who loved themselves and didn't want to hem themselves in, said, as long as I do the paperwork, I can get a divorce. And Jesus says, no way, buddy. And now I want you to understand why we laid the foundation we did. Jesus says... If anybody divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another, causes her to commit adultery. What is Jesus saying? The word translated in the NIV, marital unfaithfulness, is a word that you've probably heard before, translates from the Greek into English, and and you can hear it, what it is. It's a word that kind of sounds like this in the Greek, pornania. We get our English word pornography from that. And it's a word that is a broad term for sexual sin that violates the marriage bed and the sanctity of it. Hebrews says that the marriage bed is holy and undefiled. When you get outside of the marriage bed and away from your marriage partner and these kinds of behaviors go on, it is a defiling, it is sin, as I hope you got the point in point number one, laying the foundation. The Pharisees' misinterpretation was, number one, that you had to have a paper trail and then you were okay, didn't matter what. Jesus said no, for no reason other than marital unfaithfulness. Now to Matthew chapter 19 where Jesus repeats what we call this exception clause. Matthew chapter 19, notice what he says, beginning with verse 1. And this is one of those situations where the the Pharisees following Jesus around try to entrap him with his words. And it'll help you to understand that at this time, there was basically two popular views among the religious self-righteous Pharisees and Sadducees. There was like a Hillel camp, Rabbi Hillel. He said... No divorce, no remarriage for anything except marital unfaithfulness. And, he, and then there was the Shimai camp, something like that. I don't know how to pronounce these guys' names. See Willem afterwards, he'll tell you. And they're not in the Bible, but it's in, it's in is, the history of Israel, other parallel history accounts. And he said you could divorce for any reason at all. What you'll see here is part of what's going on is when these Pharisees approach Jesus and ask him a question, they're trying to get him to choose between two camps that are well known among the Pharisees so that they can create tension against Jesus. They're always trying to get him in trouble in public. Okay? Verse 19, chapter 19, verse 1 of Matthew. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him, here it is, to test him. 
And they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? That would be the the one camp. And they don't think he'll take that view, but they're trying to get him in trouble. Notice now, this is where Jesus quotes Genesis. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? Okay, that's chapter 1, verse 27 of Genesis. And said... Chapter 2, verse 24 of Genesis. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Isn't that great? They go on. Why then, they ask, verse 7, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way. Look where he goes. Back to the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness, there's the exception clause again, and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. If I have the possibility of being stuck with a lemon and and marital unfaithfulness is the only way I can get out of it, I'm just not getting married. Isn't that interesting? Second way that the Pharisees misinterpret the word, first of all, if you just write out a certificate of divorce and Jesus says, no way, only for marital unfaithfulness is it ever allowed. And then they ask him, which camp are you in? And he goes back to Genesis, reminding them, number three, of the original expectation of marriage. That it is a permanent relationship, that man is not supposed to put it asunder, and that God designed one man, one woman, to live in a monogamous relationship in purity for life until death do us part. But then they misquote Moses, in Deuteronomy 24, and we'll not turn there, but they say then in verse 7, why then did Moses command them to get a divorce? And that's another misinterpretation back under point 2. Not only did they say, just write out a certificate of divorce, but Moses commanded divorce. No, he did not. Moses allowed divorce, and not everyone is, agrees or can understand exactly in, in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, exactly what the uncleanness was that was present. It probably was not adultery because for adultery they were supposed to stone them and kill them. And the point Moses is making there in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 was if he divorced her for this uncleanness, she married somebody else and that person died, she was not to come back and marry this guy because that would then be an adulterous relationship because it was an unlawful divorce to begin with. This is a little bit confusing, but they misquote Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. And Jesus goes back to the original expectation. And you say, Pastor Van, that doesn't make any sense. Why would Jesus say, you know how it was in the beginning. You know how God created male and female. You know how they were to become one flesh. You know how man is not to put asunder what God has brought together in this sacred relationship. Why then does Jesus say in Matthew 19, except... For this marital unfaithfulness. Why does Jesus say for this sexual sin outside that defiles the marriage bed, are they allowed to divorce and then remarry? Why? It's because that's how much it means to God, this purity of the marriage bed. Let me, let me give you an illustration. Once in a while, I fly on an airplane. Many of you have done this, and you know exactly what I'm going to say. You're on the ground getting ready to fly away in the airplane, and there's a steward or a stewardess that stands down the front of the aisle. And they tell you about the oxygen dropping out of the ceiling if the cabin loses pressure and so forth. And then they say, and if we crash in water, you think, well, I'm glad I'm going to Oklahoma, you know, or something. And you say, if they crash, well, the Mississippi's kind of wide there in one spot. And... uh, there's a flotation device under your, your seat. Your seat turns into a flotation device. And I always get that laminated plastic thing out and, and open it up and look at it because 
I figure if I crash, I want to try to survive. So I ought to know where the exits are and know which one of my parts of my seat cushion is going to float me and which one's not. And I figure I want to know what's going on here a little bit. And then they have those pictures and they tell you, and you see the pictures, that at the exit doors, they have these inflatable slides that you can slide down out the exit door. And then you pull these cords on the inflatable slides and they detach from the side of the airplane and it's a life raft. So there you are holding on to your cushion in your life raft floating around out in the middle of the ocean so you can get picked up. I figure it's worth a try, you know? Well, let me ask you a question. Do you think that at Boeing headquarters or whoever is makes these jets, that in the back room where the engineers have all these stacks of paper and they're designing, you know, these jets, that they're talking about how they're designing them to fail? Man, shucks, I sure hope she flies, Jank. No! They totally plan on what? That airplane is designed to take off with a load of people, a load of fuel, and a load of luggage and fly safely from, from Dulles to London Heathrow and land at breakfast time there and just have a great trip, right? They don't design airplanes to fail. Airplanes are designed to fly. Airplanes are designed to succeed and successfully transport people. You say, then why do they put a seat cushion in it with a flotation device? And why do they have a life raft slide hooked up to the exit doors? Because every once in a while, things don't go as planned. The engineers did not design a plane not to fly any more than God did not design marriage to be permanent. But the reality of sin is that people do really stupid stuff. And we'll see that in chapter 4 of Genesis when we talk about sin in chapter 3 as well and 4 with Cain and Abel and with Eve in chapter 3. How foolish and deceptive sin is. Every once in a while, your marriage airplane crashes. And God says, I have a safety mechanism for this one area. I think so highly of the sanctity of marriage You are to commit till death do us part. It's a lifelong relationship, but I want to tell you something. If one of the partners gets involved in this horrendous nature of sexual sin outside of the marriage bed, cut them off. You can divorce and you can remarry. And you do not commit adultery. It's implicit that you're remarrying. Otherwise, you wouldn't have to worry about committing adultery. God is good in that way, isn't he? And I don't see how Jesus could have been much clearer in what he said. So we've seen a biblical foundation of the horrendous nature of sexual sin outside of marriage. We've seen the Pharisees' misinterpretation. Oh, just write it on a piece of paper and then you're okay. Jesus said no. Has to be for marital unfaithfulness, Matthew 5. They said, well, Moses commanded it. Jesus said no, Moses did not command it for any reason. It has to be marital unfaithfulness. Jesus goes back to the original expectation. Marriage is to be permanent. But there is an exception clause that he gives for this marital unfaithfulness. That's how much that kind of sin grieves the heart of God. In the Old Testament, it got you the death penalty. In the New Testament, it gets you a divorce. The Apostle Paul, Jesus put that practical limitation on marriage. And the Apostle Paul, and let's end in 1 Corinthians 7 to answer one more question, gives a little additional information on marriage as well. And in Corinth, where marriages were a mess and the gospel began to be preached and lives were changing, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we have, under the Apostle Paul's pen and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, answers to a whole bunch of questions about marriage. And one of the big questions that they had was because people were getting saved in Corinth, and Corinth immorality was rampant, polygamy was popular. All kinds of sexual issues outside of marriage were going on. And then one of the partners would get saved. But the other partner didn't get saved. And the partner who got saved was evidently wondering from the apostles, do I stay married to this pagan? I mean, they're, even getting, they're maybe even getting involved in outside sexual relationships. All kinds of things going on. Are they worshiping false pagan gods? Am I supposed to be married to them? The Apostle Paul doesn't give us the questions to the answers, but he gives us the answers to the questions, and so you can kind of formulate the questions. Let's begin up at verse 10 in 1 Corinthians 7. To the married I give this command, 
not I, but the Lord. Okay, this is what a reaffirmation of the teaching of Christ. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. It is a reaffirmation of the original intention and expectation of God on marriage right there. Guy smacks you with the back of his hand one day in the kitchen, you don't get to divorce him. Get out of the house, get your big brother to come beat the daylights out of him. Well, don't say I said that. (laughs) Call the cops on him. But you don't divorce him. You can separate. You say, where's that in the Bible? You show me where in the Bible it says I'm not supposed to sleep at night out in the middle of Flowing Springs Road. I think there's some certain common sense things that are just obvious. He didn't have to write about it. God didn't say don't sleep out in the middle of the interstate because you get run over by a tractor trailer. Same thing. Don't stay in a house where someone's beating you with a ball bat. Now you can separate and you can work on it, but you have to stay single. I see nowhere in Scripture where we, you know, he's a drunk, he's a drug addict, whatever. Yeah, you married an idiot. By God's grace, he can get saved and turn his life around. And you might need to back away from him until God can get a hold of his heart, but you don't divorce him unless there's that ongoing marital unfaithfulness that becomes just irreconcilable. An affirmation there in verse 10 of the permanence of marriage. To the rest I say this, not the Lord. Parentheses, verse 12. Jesus didn't talk specifically about this, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I'm telling you this, he says. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. In other words, these unequally yoked relationships, now that the gospel was being preached in Corinth and one partner is saved and the other partner is not, is not grounds for divorce. If they're willing to stay in the home, you're to stay married to them. It's difficult, but there is some redeeming grace here a little bit. I don't believe he's talking about a saving grace in the next verse, but he's talking about a general grace of the blessing that God will bring to the household and to the children because of your obedience. For the unbelieving husband, verse 14, has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. There's evidently people who were in this situation and their children had gotten saved and were coming to church in Sunday school because they came with their mom or their dad, even though they had an unsafe partner. And, and Paul says, if they're willing to live together, stay with them so that this general grace of the blessing of obedience can be upon them and ultimately try to reach them for Christ. Then he says, verse 15, but if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. Turn to the end of that passage, to verse 39, and look where he uses the same word, bound, and look at what the meaning is. Chapter 7, verse 39. A different teaching, a different question that he's answering about when when your spouse dies. Am I allowed to remarry if my spouse dies? It's a good question. A woman is bound to her husband, verse 39, as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord, no unequally yoked relationships. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God, a little tongue-in-cheek. Look what it says. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. It's the same word. Now turn back to verse 15. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. Don't fight him. If they say, I'm through with you and your Jesus stuff and I'm out of here, then you are to quietly let them go. And if they stay away, that's not in the passage, but I think it's common sense. If they stay away, a believing man or woman is not, look at the word, bound in such circumstances. It's the same word, and in the relationship where the spouse dies, the wife or husband is no longer bound and is free to remarry. I would take it that the same parallel principle is true of verse 15. They are no longer bound in this relationship of an unequally yoked spouse who deserts them. They are then free to remarry. 
They didn't initiate the divorce. They received the divorce. And God in his grace says, you do not have to live single, even though Paul says, I wish you would just live single the rest of your life. God says, I'm going to allow you to remarry in that situation. That's the only two circumstances that I know in Scripture where God allows an exception in divorce. You say, but Pastor Van, you don't understand. Before I was saved, I divorced and I remarried and I'm the one that had the affair. And so what you're saying is that I'm living in an adulterous relationship right now? Possibly, yes. Well, what am I supposed to do? Should I divorce this person? No. You should stay married to that person. You should confess and forsake your sin. And you should remember this. The will of God for your life begins right now. The will of God for your life always begins right now. You cannot undo the past, can you? And hands would go up all over this room if we said, how many of you regret the stupid stuff you've done? <sighs> Pastor Van, I don't, even, I don't even want to tell you all the stupid stuff I've done. The will of God, my friend, begins for you anew and afresh right now. You can't undo it. You can't go back and make amends. You may need to write a letter of repentance and confessing and ask for forgiveness. I think of my friend Andy Maples. We support him at New Life Bible Camp. His wife divorced him and went with another man. And He went to the elders of his church. They recommended him based on 1 Corinthians 7 that he stay single and serve the Lord at that time in his life. He's done that. He's been single now. He's in his 50s. He was divorced in his 20s. It's been a very difficult journey for him. God has used him in great ways, and God has blessed him. And he said one day the phone rang, and he couldn't believe it. It was his wife, and she said, Andy, I just called to tell you I'm sorry I sinned against you. It meant a lot to him. You might need to do some things like that to confess, to forsake, to repair the past. You don't divorce who you're with now, and by God's grace, you love your spouse Because some of you have jumped from the frying pan into the fire. And you know it. Well, it's difficult. And I don't have the answers. But I know we have a God who can break hearts. 1 Peter 3 tells wives to live with unsaved husbands in quietness and gentleness so that they see the godliness of your inner beauty. The beauty of your inner godliness. I don't know what else to tell you. You can't just go fill out the paperwork. Jesus said, no, that's not how it's done. Only for marital unfaithfulness. You can't say all the things you might say. He said, no, Paul said, only if an unbelieving spouse deserts you. And I would also say, too, in conclusion, that all of the principles of reconciliation for broken relationships that the Bible is full of, particularly the New Testament, instructs us forgiving one another bearing with one another not keeping a record of wrong i would say that all of the forgiveness passages and the reconciliation passages are to be pursued in a relationship before you finally get to a place where you would say you know what this thing is broken because of this sexual this sexual filth outside of marriage to the degree that it can no longer go on it's very difficult sin is very ugly But marriage is very sacred, and God protects it. We've seen the foundation of this is God's view of the sanctity of the marriage bed, and that when that's crossed over, how how horrendous and heinous it is in God's sight. We've seen that um, God condemns that kind of behavior. We know from Malachi chapter 2 that he hates divorce, We've seen from Genesis chapter 1 and 2 that he intends for marriage to be permanent and lifelong. We've seen through the teaching of Christ and Paul that there's only two exceptions in extenuating circumstances by God's grace when the marriage bed is violated and when there's desertion by an unsafe partner. Other than that, you're to live single and ask God to restore your home. That's why you need a church family. That's why you need godly friends. It's why we need to raise up our children to marry well. It matters who you marry. And God has a high view of marriage, and the world in which we live has a low view of marriage. We're God's people. 
so we have a high view of marriage. Let's pray. I don't know how the Lord is using this in your life, how it applies. Some of us just need to wake up and realize how much we really need to re-fall in love with our spouses. Others need to stop lusting after pornography or their neighbor's wife. Others need to maybe write a brief note to someone and say, I'm sorry I sinned against you and it broke our marriage up. And you need to pray for God's grace now to move ahead with the marriage that you're in. And his will starts for you right now. Some of us need to work harder than we have at our entertainments and our worldlinesses, training our children how big of a deal this is, not modeling after them a lust after the things of the world. Let the Lord speak to your heart. Father, we confess our weaknesses before you. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who gave us instruction in the Apostle Paul and these passages of Scripture that are helpful to clarify the convoluted mess that we find in so many circumstances. Father, may we have a high view of marriage. May we protect our marital, marital relationship. May we protect our marriage bed. May we be focused on Christ, and may the holiness and purity of Christ-likeness be evident in our lives. For those who are in difficult situations, Lord, would you help them bear their burden? Would you give them wisdom? They need wisdom hour by hour and day by day. It's so difficult. And I pray that you'd show them how to live and live effectively and give them your grace and the peace that passes all understanding. We commit ourselves to you anew and afresh in our homes, in our marriages, and in walking in righteousness, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.